Welcome to the Dacus Report, hosted by Pacific Justice Institute founder and president Brad Dacus. For 25 years, PJI has counseled, represented, and defended people whose religious freedoms, parental rights, or sanctity of life have been obstructed or violated, all free of charge. We leave no one behind and level the playing field for Americans as they are subjected to the tyranny of the powerful. Now, here's Brad Dacus. Welcome to the Dacus Report. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Uh, on today's show, uh, we'd like to talk to our attorney out of our Nevada office, Emily Mimna, uh, about uh, some very, a very important case that uh, came out of Indiana, which uh, involves parental rights. Uh, Emily, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, Brad. Oh, good morning. Uh, so, Emily, um, this, uh, I understand that Indiana Child Protective Services took a child from parents, and the reason for taking the child from the parents wasn't uh, the norm or what one might expect. What happened in this case? Right. I mean, the bottom line is these were Christian parents who did not affirm, support, acknowledge, encourage their child's transgender identity. At the time that this started, the child was 16, and I, I'm using the word child um, not out of disrespect, but because the court documents don't name the, the individual because it's a minor. And so basically there was a report that the parents, the mother and father, were not being supportive of the transgender identity and that this was constituting verbal and emotional abuse. And so there were two reports, and off of those two reports of um, alleged abuse, um, this entire court case ensues which resulted in the child being removed from, from the parents, from the parents' home and put into state custody. Wow. I mean, it's not like these parents didn't love their child. Um, they did love their child, and because of that, they did not probably want to affirm something that they know is going to be uh, damaging for the child should they go down that path. I know, statistically, most transgenders, uh, individuals, don't live to see their 30th birthday. Uh, even if they have, you know, liberal community support, um, the death rate, the suicides rate, still just as high. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I have a hard time, you know, really blaming the parents for not wanting to encourage something that they know is going to be harmful to their child. It just doesn't make sense. So, how long, how long have they been separated, these parents, uh, from their 16-year-old child? It's, it's been about a year and a half. The child was 16 when removed from the home. And an important, a very important fact in this case was that about a, a year leading up to this alleged report of emotional abuse, the child was suffering a eating disorder. It was a biological male who was identifying as female. And so there was also this anorexia issue that seemed to be developing and, and getting worse. And so in May, there was a complaint. By June, the child was removed. And it has been about 18 months since the, the child has been in the family home. And just this last Friday, October 21st, the Indiana State Court of Appeals ruled against the parents. And so there, there is no you know, coming return of this child to the home. And at this point, the child's almost 18. Yeah, it seems to me that... Um this allegation of abuse or neglect because the child is, uh, you know, is, you know, suffering from you know, this, um, this confusion that they're undergoing. It seems that, uh, that, that you know, that, that if anything, uh, that, you know, maybe they could allege that, well, the parents, you know, should have brought their child in for, for counseling to 
uh, to remedy and to resolve this, this dysphoria, which is so harmful in, uh, in the long run. Um, unfortunately, though, Emily, as you and I both know, a number of states across the country have banned that kind of counseling, reparative you know, counseling to help children work through the underlying issues uh, that's encouraging their dysphoria and therefore resulting in uh, issues dealing uh, like you just mentioned. So uh, that's most unfortunate. Now, why, what happened, though, to bring this to the courts? Usually, I mean, usually parents don't end up in, in courts um, like this. What, what, what happened? It progressed, I would say, it seems pretty quickly. So on May 11, there was an initial complaint about the supposed verbal and emotional abuse. Then there was a second complaint about two weeks later. And then within, by, I believe, the end of May, the state equivalent of CPS had already written up a report um, pushing for the removal of the child. And there was this initial hearing, um, combined initial and detention hearing, uh, held in June. So, so it moved very, very quickly. And, you know, to your point about therapy, that the parents had not taken the child at the time of this initial hearing to a medical doctor, but the child had been apparently to some type of counseling that was not effective. And so that was discontinued. Uh, um, so there were already initial attempts to find treatment for the child by, by the time of this initial hearing, but that was not sufficient. And oftentimes this, the treatment that is uh, initiated by the government is counterproductive. Oftentimes it encourages a child to have this confusion, this dysphoria. It often plays into it, um, encourages visualization of the dysphoria and even potential actions to, uh, to carry out the dysphoria, that is to physically change the body. Uh, I know we at Pacific Justice Institute had a case like this in California. Uh, we were able to get into court and stop and prevent prevent the procedure from taking place then uh, defended the christian family we got the child the 16 year old also by the way it was a female got the child restored back with the family and at the very end of this battle the the child said to the court she said you know your honor um i don't think i want to be a boy after all end quote i mean had we not gotten involved that child would have been messed up for life permanently sterilized, no way to go backward, at least in, in, in that regard. So uh, the government can be very destructive in a lot of its counseling, I've discovered, because, and also those who often do the counseling get paid through the agency. The agency gets money for every child they take from the federal government, about $8,000. So it's a very incestuous situation as well. That's one reason why I know uh, we often encourage parents in these situations before losing the child to, to get counseling from a competent counselor that really has the best interests of the child at heart. So what happened after this for report was filed with the courts? So, so they, they proceed to this court hearing, and in, in the court hearing there are allegations, again, of this emotional and verbal abuse, that they were not affirming the child, the child saying, you know, teenagers disagreeing with the parents about the religious beliefs about her or his transgender identity. And so in the course of this disagreement, the child is self-isolating, saying he doesn't feel affirmed, doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel cared for in the home. And so the court ultimately decides in, in June of last year that it is necessary to remove the child from the family home uh, in order to obtain a you know, different treatment for, for the child. And, and so the, obviously this is counter to the parents' religious beliefs, but he, he, the, the, the parents really were, hands were tied at that point because this is an order from the court. 
Did you know that PJI defends pastors and their churches free of charge, while also providing valuable resources to help protect the church from the encroachment of government? Keep current on PJI's work on all the legal challenges we face on a daily basis by signing up for our Legal Insider email newsletter at pji.org. Now, back to the Dacus Report. Yeah. So the trial court ruled basically that it was best for the child, best interest of the child, to remove them from their parents. Um, obviously, these, these parents, though, love this child because they were fighting so hard to get their child back. Um, the basic issue here, it seemed to me, was that the parents had strong Christian beliefs. They loved their child. They wanted what's best for the child, but it didn't agree with the uh, ideology of Child Protective Services that governs so many CPS agencies across the country. Um, that was in June 2021. What happened next? Well, this is where it, it takes um, an important turn factually. So in October, so just like about five, four or five months later, after the child, again, the child has been removed from the parent's care, okay, at this point. They are not, um, the child is not being looked after day to day by the, the parents. They have visitation rights and that's it. Um, so about five months in, there is a motion by the state, state agency, to amend their complaint to say that the child has now become a harm to themselves. So the self-harm, right? This um, eating disorder has become so bad. Again, in the care of the state, the child has lost so much weight that the child is now a danger to themselves. And the parents don't disagree with that. They don't contest that. And then in November, there's an agreement, again, with the state and the parents that the state actually withdraws withdraws their prior complaints against the parents alleging this emotional and verbal abuse. So those the complaints, any claims against the parents have been expunged. And the only issue remaining before the court, before this um, ultimate hearing in December, is whether or not the child is a harm to you know themselves. And so that's what comes before the court with regard to whether or not the child should return home. And that, that, that becomes very important. So they pretty much realized seemingly that they, they, they blew it. I know many years ago I had a case dealing with uh, a little toddler that was taken, a little, little baby actually was taken from the mother by Child Protective Services because the child couldn't hold down milk, was, was thin. They put the child with the foster parents. Foster parents realized this child's not holding down milk. And uh, someone behind the scenes uh, had contacted the foster parents who were Christians themselves, had the child examined by a private pediatrician outside that incestuous pool of CPS and their, quote, experts. And that private doctor said, this child has a condition, a gastroesophageal reflex condition. This is not abuse. It still took seven more months for that baby to be reunited with the parent, with the mother, because social workers still did not want to give up the money that they were getting from the government at the expense of this child. So I just had a, you know, hearing these facts, it's sort of like a flashback of what I had to deal with many years ago in, in juvenile court uh, on behalf of that mother. She finally got the child back, um, but it was, you know, it's, it's, who knows the kind of harm that happened to the child being separated from their mother, particularly at a young age. Now, this is, we're dealing with a teenager. Why didn't the child go home a year ago? Why, why didn't exactly. it happen earlier? That's really the, the baffling question here is the child has gotten worse, but again, 
in those five months, the, the child wasn't at home. They were in this new treatment that was supposed to be, you know, helpful. And instead, the condition has gotten worse. And, and you know, and to be clear, you don't need to blame the state or the treatment. The, fa the fact of the matter is these are very challenging and difficult circumstances. And, you know, it is possible to say that the treatment from the state is no more at fault than the care was, you know, of the parents at home. You, there, there's a lot of factors at play here. And, you know, personal physiological changes when you're a teenager, they are challenging. But the point of the matter is that what seemed to have been a rush to judgment against the parents for not being sufficiently affirming, sufficiently, you know, encouraging, you know, did not get any better when the child was removed. Nonetheless, the court said we need to continue to have these court mandated therapy treatments, individual and family. We need to have some type of clinical um, intervention, and, and they call it coercive intervention, which in fairness is accurate, and that's what it is from the state. And, and so the, it was the the ruling was that you needed they needed to continue to remove the child from the home because the parents continued not to provide a sufficiently safe environment. You know, I, I like to think that there was some kind of counseling that could have been provided that could have helped deal with whatever the underlying psychological issues and that that. Uh, the state probably went the wrong direction in affirming this, but once again, that's speculative at, uh, from, my, from my viewpoint, purely speculative. Uh, so if the parents were no longer charged with a wrongdoing, uh, why didn't the Court of Appeals just simply reverse this? This is crazy. It is, and what the court said is that, you know, this is an extreme scenario in which the parents and the child disagree about the course of the child's life, and, and again, and you, you, you point this out and the court did as well, which is that there is at, at, at the time that this decision was made in December to continue to keep the child from the family home, there was no claim of wrongdoing by either of the parents, not the mother, not the father. Nonetheless, because the parents had and the child all agreed and conceded that the child was a harm to themselves, that in and of itself was sufficient reason to keep the child from the home. And that's that's where I, I think this case becomes a bit circular, which is to say, you know, the, the home is not sufficiently supportive because of the religious beliefs. And I really don't think you can disentangle that claim to say that the Christian beliefs of the parents were at, at the root of it, the reason that the home was not being found to be sufficiently supportive. And, and I find that deeply concerning from a parental rights and obviously from a constitutional rights point of view. Yeah, there has to be some kind of bias as to why they're saying these parents um, are not safe for the child who's going through these issues. Uh, what kind of parents would be safe for a child who's potentially suicidal? Um, what stereotype, what generalization is, is being implied or, or, or made by the, by the court? I, I, I just, those are some of the questions in my mind. Now, um, so why did the court say it wasn't safe to return the child to the parents? What exactly did they, did they say? Right. So this is this is where the, the court says there is a, quote, clear nexus between the medical and psychological issues the child is having and the home of the parents, the home being a Christian home where they're not going to be using the pronouns and affirming this gender identity uh, of their six, then 16 year old child. And, and so and I'm going to you know quote the, the trial court here, which is they said, in reality, this is an extreme example of a child having a certain lifestyle that the parents don't agree with. This has been going on for all of time. <laughs> and I would agree with that. You know, parents and parent, particularly teenagers and parents disagree. 
The difference here that the trial court claims is that that disagreement is manifesting itself in a severe medical and psychological condition. So again, what at the root of it, you are saying, in effect, that there is at least some connection between the Christian beliefs of the family and the manifestation of this medical condition. And and there, I really do have to ask, how on earth can you prove that? And how on earth can you justify removing a child from the home because you claim that their disagreement with their parents is resulting in severe, you know, in the manifestation of a psychological condition? Did you know that PJI is the only legal defense nonprofit in America that serves state citizens by fighting state legislatures across the country to ensure unconstitutional or corrupt bills don't become unconstitutional or corrupt laws? That's right. For over 12 years, PJI's Center for Public Policy has generated success by standing firm in opposition to unconstitutional or immoral state bills which makes it easier for our allies in the legislatures to kill these kinds of wrong-headed and even depraved pieces of legislation. Keep current on PJI's work on all the legal challenges we face on a daily basis, including our work through our Center for Public Policy, by signing up for our Legal Insider email newsletter at pji.org. Now, back to the Dacus Report. Yeah, without question, parents who have a child that is going through issues uh, of depression, um, anorexia, uh, or you know, gender identity dysphoria, or a combination of those, uh, they need to get counseling for their child. I think that's uh, very important. Uh, it could be you know, faith-based counseling, uh, but you know, kids, those are crises um, points, if you will. Uh, children who have this kind of dysphoria, uh, if it's not reconciled, if it's not resolved, uh, it often leads to, to depression and, and suicide. It's, and those who go down that track and have body parts cut off and injected with hormones, they don't have a lower uh, suicide rate. It's just as high. So, uh, you know, the world's answer is not an answer. It's, it's a surrender. Uh, parents in these situations, I strongly encourage you, if you're watching this program now, uh, don't be in denial. Understand you've got an issue. Uh, sometimes your, your children may hide it and may not uh, reveal it. Uh, but if you do know about it and you do see it, uh, get some, some professional uh, counseling from those who, who really um, are, are, are concerned about the welfare of your child. They don't have any, uh, a radical ideology that they're trying to, to go along with, uh, the new fad in, in psychology, but uh, have a, a biblical worldview and want to do what's best for the child, even if it may not be politically correct with the latest fad of, of psychology. So, but this is a tragic situation uh, that we're dealing with here. So um, how did the state prove, okay, that uh, there was a, a clear nexus between the parents or relationship between the parents' religious beliefs and the child's self-harm? I mean, how did they prove, how did they prove that or did they? That, that, that's the question, Brad, and that, that, is, that is the court. So, so again, this went to the appellate court. Just the, We got the ruling just last Friday. We, we read the ruling just last Friday. But, but at the trial court level, they were not looking for clear and convincing, um, you know, indisputable, irrefutable proof. They, they, this started with, and I'll just work through the different stages here. It started with probable cause. All they needed to remove the child was probable cause or reasonable suspicion, all right? That was enough 
back in last year in um, May and June to get the child removed from the home. Then in December, they said again that you didn't need irrefutable, clear and convincing evidence. And here the appellate court agreed. And this, I really do find this deeply concerning, which is that the standard of proof imposed by the trial court and upheld by the appellate court was only what's called preponderance of the evidence, which is to say more likely than not, 51% at least, you know, to say it's probably better and in the best interest of the child not to be home with the parents. And that's a pretty low bar. Obviously, we don't have that standard in criminal courts. And and the, the, the court kind of minces its words a little bit and says, well, we're not talking about terminating parent rights because they can still have visitation. Um, I don't think most parents would think that they were having their parental rights respected when the child is removed for 18 months from their home. Right. You're absolutely right. And I know we at Pacific Justice Institute have drafted model legislation for all 50 states uh, to firm up some of these the protections uh, for parents including the standard that you just mentioned. It's ridiculous. It's, well, more likely not 51%. Okay, we'll take the kids. Uh, and we see it being very sloppily implemented in juvenile courts with children being taken all the time that shouldn't be taken. In fact, a, a study by the Department of Health and Human Services, um, not an entity that always agrees with me, but <laughs> they uh, came out with a study saying that most children that are taken by social workers should not be taken. That's what the studies show. Uh, it's better for a child to be in a moderately abusive home than to be put, uh, be taken from their parents and put into foster care. That's their quote, not mine. So there's a real need for reform. And I know we at Pacific Justice Institute with our offices across the country, uh, coast to coast, uh, are offering uh, to testify in support of this kind of legislative reform. Uh, real quick, uh, the parents' constitutional rights. I know many people are wondering about, about this. You know, the 14th Amendment, they have a, a right to care the, and, and custody and control of their child. Um, there's clear case law on that. You know, why, why didn't that fly? Well, the court said absolutely they agreed with you, Brad. There is a 14th Amendment right to the care and the control and the upbringing of your child. And, and the, the cut to the chase, simply put, the court said, well, best interest of the child always wins. And, you know, we would agree with that. We simply don't agree, at least I don't agree, that the best interest of the child is usually removing them from, you know, Christian parents who love them. And, and so, too, when you look at the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of exercise of religion, again, we re the court says, you know, we, we acknowledge, we recognize, we respect those beliefs. But best interest, best interest of the child trumps. And when you have such a low standard of evidence to say that's what the best interest is, removing the child, you, you really have the, the deck stack against, stacked against you. And I'll just say I didn't really appreciate why PJI was so involved and so concerned about, you know, social workers taking children because you hear about, you know, CPS taking children and you think, oh, they must be bad parents. And then you look at some of these fact patterns and it is really, really shocking from a Christian, you know, biblical worldview and perspective. Yeah, it, it is. And I know I used to think that same way until I became a lawyer and got involved in this and my mouth dropped in shock and horror of, of what was taking place. And um, what, ha what happens next? What happens next in this case? You know, I don't actually think this is, case is going to go much further, mostly because of the child's age. Um, the mm. child, like I said, was taken at age 16. They're about 17 and a half now, going to be 18 soon. They could appeal to the Supreme Court because the appellate court in Indiana is their kind of middle tier court. 
But I, I don't think, you know, seeing how long this case has already taken, that's not likely to happen. I mean, the good news, though, is that when the child reaches 18, if they want to have a relationship with their parents, they won't have the state and the courts interfering with that. So, you know, there is still this possibility for re reunification, which, of course, is supposed to be the goal of all of these family proceedings. I know we have a number of, of cases uh, that we've taken on and we're dealing with right now, but uh, what can parents do to help protect themselves? A lot of parents sort of get nervous when they hear about this, but we actually have an extremely valuable resource that will help uh, protect them from losing their children. Could you talk about that? Right, we do. So first, pji.org, pacificjusticeinstitute.org, free resources under parental rights. And there is 12 steps to help protect you and your children from social services and social workers. And, and so if you're reading this, if you're feeling concerned, this is not, you know, none of this is meant to scare you. It's just meant to inform you and also to come with the knowledge that PJI does have free resources available to help equip and inform and protect you and your children. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think it's one of our most valuable resources. It's free right now, available on our website, pji.org. There you can also sign up to get our Legal Insider newsletter. It's a weekly update, very helpful. And, uh, and we have great uh, other resources that you can take a look at as well that can be of, of big assistance to, to you in preparing for what is an alarming trend in challenging the rights of parents. We would love the opportunity to continue to serve you. Just visit pji.org and click the Legal Insider button to sign up for our email newsletter. At PJI, we help individual employees, employers, business owners, pastors, students, citizens of every stripe through our practical resources, counsel, representation, and defense, all free of charge at pji.org. PJI is an island of stability and assurance in our ever-churning sea of legal and societal chaos. We are here for you. So folks, just remember, it's our God-given freedoms we're talking about. Now, let's choose to keep them. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's continue the fight for your freedoms.